few months ago, my youngest son comes up to me and says, Dad, you want to arm wrestle? And I'm like, absolutely, let's go. I roll up my sleeves and I'm going to destroy this kid. This is one of the few arm wrestles I know for sure I can win. He's five years old, right? And so we get there, we're in position and we have our hands ready. And right before we're about to go, he looks up at me and says, Dad, just don't use all your might. And I was like, what? Come on. Don't use all your might. And I kind of broke out laughing, not just because of the situation, but also the way he phrased it. Don't use all your might. I mean, might is not a word that we use often anymore to describe maybe mundane things like your own father. Might and mighty are often words that we associate with superheroes. So if you're a fan of Marvel comics, you will read the title at the beginning of the comic. It's the Mighty Thor or the Mighty Avengers and even the Mighty Captain Marvel. And yet this word also finds itself describing superheroes in TV shows. If you grew up in a certain generation, you might have woken up on Saturday morning to try to watch the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. Or if you were like me, being forbidden from watching the Power Rangers for some unknown reason. And if you're even a different generation, you may have watched the show The Mighty Hercules. And this is an adjective that has even worked its way into hockey because for some time we had an NHL team called the Mighty Ducks, which of course was also based off of a movie. And they, they ceased being mighty in 2007. And that will be proven later on today when they lose to the Jets. But there is a challenge in taking a word that we use so casually and applying it as an adjective to God. But of course, it's really the other way around. When we read Isaiah 9, we recognize that God has been declared and described to be mighty long before we would have taken that word to apply it to made-up superheroes and subpar hockey teams from California. And as we will see, this way of describing God is much more spectacular than any of these other uses could even hope to be. With that in mind, let's pray once more. God, we ask you now to just be with us in a very real, personal way, that your spirit would abide with us here and be our guide into truth. I pray that as we go through some familiar passages of the Christmas season, that they would not be overly familiar, but that you would ignite or reignite in us a sense of awe as you are described to be mighty God. We just want to give this time to you and pray it all in your name. Amen. Well, as Melissa and her girls reminded us in the Advent reading, we are in Isaiah 9-6, and we are going to camp out on the fact that Isaiah prophesied of this coming Messiah, this coming King, that his name shall be called Mighty God. And so in order for us to understand this title, we again begin with the noun, which is, what are we talking about? We are talking about someone who will be God. And that's a fairly groundbreaking, earth-shattering place to begin. The fact that Isaiah prophesied the Messiah would be God. And it is a claim to divinity. There's no mistaking it. There's no other way to truly understand this. And if we needed any further proof than that which is just in front of the page, if we continue to read in Isaiah, and we find this in chapter 10, verse 21, he prophesies that a remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. And so in chapter 10, Isaiah is using this term and title to describe Yahweh, the one true God, the God of Israel and Judah. 
And if he's using that descriptor of Yahweh in verse 10 or chapter 10, then he is referring to the same God in chapter 9. This is an unmistakable claim to divinity in the middle of a messianic prophecy. But interestingly, as we go and fast forward time from Isaiah to the time of Christ, when Jesus arrives on the scene, it appears that the messianic expectations of that day, even though they were at fever pitch, they were different. You see, those people who were the religious leaders and, and scribes and Pharisees and those who were interpreting the Hebrew Scriptures and bringing it to the people, they were looking for a person. And the Messiah literally means anointed one. They, they were expecting a human being who was especially anointed by God for the purpose of delivering his people. That was what they were looking for. And yet maybe, maybe they had looked over or written away this important piece of Isaiah 9, where this is mighty God. They were not expecting God himself. They were instead expecting only a person. And so when we find these expectations clash, we see uh, that, that there is conflict that comes when Jesus makes a claim to be divine, when, when he makes a claim to be this mighty God that Isaiah was foretelling, then, then it is met with claims of blasphemy because the people were not looking for God. They were looking for a person. This is a story in John 10, a little longer of a passage, but it's a story that shows this clash in expectations of the Messiah. At the time the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem, it was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And the word Christ there is the Greek word for Messiah. Are you the Messiah? They asked him. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. And then he says something audacious. Then he says, I and the Father are one. So they've asked him, are you the Messiah, looking for a human person? And Jesus says, in some ways, I have told you already and shown this to be true, but you did not believe me. And then at the end, he claims divinity. He says, I and the Heavenly Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father and again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped their hands. So why? why? Why take this longer passage? Because it's important to show that Jesus came not just as the anointed one of God, being a human being, but he came as God himself. God made flesh. And people were not looking for that. They weren't expecting it. 
but it was foretold even hundreds of years prior by the prophet Isaiah. And so at Christmas, we celebrate and remember the fact that Jesus is fully God and fully man. And in our songs and in our scriptures and in our sermons, we will hear this term called the incarnation. God became flesh. Incarnate means in flesh. God made flesh, which again is certainly a focal point of our Christmas celebrations. Leads to one of my very favorite verses in all of the Bible, John 1.14. And the word, being Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This word, Jesus, who was eternally and is eternally God, came down and, and became flesh and dwelt among us, and tabernacled among us, as Eugene Peterson puts in the message, <laughs> that God would move into the neighborhood. He came down to our level to be with you and to be with me. Jesus, as fully God, was born as a human baby into the course of human history, fully God, fully man. And while Jesus did come down to our level and did take on flesh, this incarnation did not strip Jesus of his divinity. He is the Son of God, and that did not change. It was an important and everlasting eternal attribute of him. Jesus is God. He was God, and he will be God. And even his coming down to our earth to be at our level never took away this characteristic of divinity. He did, however, willfully limit some of his divine attributes in order to live the complete human existence. I love the way that Paul puts it. He has this little snippet of a Christmas story in Philippians 2, 6 and 7. Again, speaking of Jesus named in the prior verse, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And and so Paul, as he's describing the true nature of Jesus, reminds us of what happened at that very first Christmas, when Jesus would condescend, come down and take on flesh, and take on the form of a servant, be born in the likeness of men. And he emptied himself, not by ceasing to be God, but by willingly giving up some of these divine attributes. I know I've used this analogy before, but I really like it. How many of you here have a credit card? Most of you have a credit card? Good. You know my least favorite part about credit cards? There's two things I don't like about them. Number one is the limit. And number two, I have to pay back everything that goes on there. If we could get rid of those two things, credit cards would be the best. Like, what would happen if you had a credit card that didn't have a limit? And, and you never had to repay. You could just take out the card and then, and then grab that and grab this. And, and what happened if this card wouldn't be limited to financial transactions, but you could restore relationships and get obstacles out of your way and get promotions? And, of course, you could do whatever you wanted to do. Well, that would be the God card. This would be having truly these divine attributes that you could just use to, to, to mold reality to whatever you wanted it to be. That would be something that God alone could do. And so at Christmas, when Jesus came down to earth into human history, he did not cease to be divine. That was still part of who he was. But he gave up his God card. He said, I'll be back for that later. And then he entered into human history, uh, having the full human experience. But it's important. It's very important for us to know that Jesus was fully God and fully human, two natures in one. It's not 50-50. 
It's not that Jesus gave up half of his divinity to then take on half humanity. It's not that Jesus was sometimes fully God and then at other times fully human. No, it's that Jesus is fully God and fully human at the same time God made flesh. But as Isaiah declares, it's not just that this Messiah would be God, and now we know God made flesh revealed in Jesus, but that this Messiah would be a mighty God. And perhaps if we've already established Jesus as being divine, it seems a bit redundant to declare him mighty, since he would have to be God himself. But mighty is an important descriptor. And what do we mean by it? Well, when I was a youth many, many years ago, living in Texas at the time, I had a youth pastor who was an amateur bodybuilder, and I said, someday I'm going to be just like him. And you can tell how well that is going so far. But his name was Pastor Andy. He was an amateur bodybuilder, and he had some relationships with other with the bodybuilding community. You know, uh, there, was, there was a certain brotherhood of guys that, that were doing this. And one of, uh, one of these groups of bodybuilders, there's a Christian group, and they would come and they would travel around to different churches and youth groups, and then they would do their bodybuilding show. They would show all of these amazing feats of strength where they would lift huge amounts of weights and, and, and bend bars. And then my personal favorite, they, they would tear a phone book in half. Okay, so I know there's some of you here, you're like, what's a phone book? So a phone book... A phone book was, a, was a, an enormous book full of all of the names of the listed phone number and numbers of, of all those who were listed in your area. And if you wanted to phone someone, you need to open the book and find their name alphabetically. And then you'd have to, have to you know, get to the phone that was plugged into the wall. So this phone book was by the, the phone that was plugged into a wall. And then you would, you would dial that number that you thought was the right one based on what you saw in this phone book. And then you'd pick it up. And sometimes you would want to call your friend, but then you couldn't because you'd hear the screeching sound on the phone. And that's because someone was on the internet. Because at the time, you couldn't be on the internet and phone someone at the same time. Not just you, but any one person in the house could not be on the internet, and then any other person could not phone at the same time, right? And so you'd hear the screeching, and it sounded kind of like a fax machine. Now, a fax machine... Okay. It's just going to... Give me a sec. I'm old. Phone books were really big. And they would take this big phone book and they would rip it in half with their bare hands. And I still to this day can't imagine how they did that. That was probably, it it stuck with me for all these years. It was truly an accomplishment, a feat of strength. And if you were to say to me, what does it look like to be mighty? That would be the picture in my mind. This is what it means to be mighty. And then these bodybuilders, after awing us and, 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 and inspiring us, then they would say that this is just still human strength. The God that we serve, the God that we know, is so much stronger than that. This is what we mean when we say mighty. And this word mighty is directly used to describe the strength of Jesus Christ, this Messiah. And we go back to Isaiah chapter 9. When we read this in the Hebrew, the Hebrew word for mighty is gabor, which is used elsewhere in the Old Testament to describe those who are valiant in battle. So those who are brave and courageous and can defeat their enemies in battle. That is what it means to be mighty in the Hebrew scriptures. And of course, military prowess was part of the context for Isaiah. And as we learned last week, to paint the appropriate picture for where this prophecy was coming from, 
We know that Israel and Judah were both under threat and under siege from the might of the Assyrian Empire. They were the the predominant world power at the time. They were hungry to expand their borders and their influence, and they were gobbling up all these smaller nations around them, and Israel was next on the chopping block. And so when Isaiah says to them that there will come a king who is a mighty God, he means he is mighty to deliver. He is mighty to conquer. He is stronger than the Assyrian empire that is threatening you now. Because Israel and Judah, they knew they couldn't win. The only thing that would make a difference was if there was somebody stronger than the Assyrians. And in the course of Israel's history, it didn't stay just the Assyrians. It was the Assyrians, and then the Babylonians, and then the Greeks, and then the Romans. They were constantly under somebody's thumb. But these people were were, were the biggest boys on the block. There was no other earthly power that was stronger than those empires. But we all know the only way to be delivered from something is to find a power greater than what is oppressing us. We learned this at a young age. I still remember being... Uh, growing up in elementary school in Landmark and being on the schoolyard in grade four. And my brother, who was in grade two at the time, was having a bit of trouble being bullied. Him and his friends were being bullied by some, some boys in grade three. So you know what I did? I just talked to them nicely. No, I, I, did, I actually didn't do that. I was in grade four. I went and found the biggest farm boys in my class that I could. And they walked with me over to these grade threes and I said, hey, just so you guys know, you're not going to be bothering my brother or his friends anymore. Got it? And they're like, yeah, okay, that's good, right? So my brother couldn't necessarily defend himself. He needed something bigger. And, and when you're in school, the pecking order is there, right? Grade two, grade three, grade four. What happens when you're facing an enemy that seems to be the greatest thing? Right? That's overwhelming. But that's where we need the hope that Jesus is the mighty God. He is bigger than the biggest enemy that we face. That's exactly what it means to have a king be a mighty God. How did this work out for Judah and their experience with the Assyrians? I think I want to, I don't think I want to, I'd like to draw our attention to a story in 2 Kings. When Assyria eventually does, after this prophecy, they come and they threaten Judah. What happens? This is what happens in 2 Kings 18. They've surrounded Jerusalem Jerusalem and Judah. And then now the Rabshakeh, the voice of the Assyrian Empire, is threatening the people. This is what he says. Until I come and take you away to a land like your own land, a land of grain and wine, uh, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey that you may live and not die, do not listen to Hezekiah, who is the king of Judah, when he misleads you by saying, the Lord will deliver us. He says, don't listen to him. Has any of the gods of the nations ever delivered this land out of the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim, Hena, and Iva? Have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of the lands have delivered their lands out of my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand? Here is a direct, here's a direct challenge to God. Don't listen to your king when he says, our God will be able to save us and deliver us. We are the biggest power. There is no other power that can stop the Assyrians. That is what this voice of Assyria is telling the people in Jerusalem to demoralize them. But what happens? Well, if we skip ahead to 2 Kings 19, verses 35 and 36, we see this happen. And that night, 
the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when people arose early in the morning, behold, these were all dead bodies. Then Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, departed and went home and lived at Nineveh. What happened? The Lord showed up. The Lord flexed his muscles. He proved that where all other earthly military might and all other claims of being gods fell short, that he could defend his people. And the Assyrians never conquered Jerusalem. The Lord showed up. He proved himself to be a mighty God. And that is the mighty God that was described to us in Isaiah 9-6 and showed up shortly thereafter in the course of the history of Judah. And that's the same mighty God that came down to our level when Jesus was born. God alone is strong enough. He alone is mighty enough to overcome the greatest of enemies. So now we know, hopefully in some significant way, that Jesus is rightfully declared as mighty God the only one who is strong enough to deliver us from our enemies today. When I talk about enemies, I'm not referring to the traditional sense of other people who are opposed to you, though perhaps you do feel like you have enemies in your life who uh, seek to tear you down and wish you harm, gossip about you behind your back. But that is not really what we need delivering from. We're not talking about obstacles and hardships necessarily. We're not talking about other people who are are threatening us the same way the Assyrians threatened Judah. Jesus is the mighty God, and he is the one who delivers us from our greatest of enemies, the enemies of sin and death. And this was always his mission. This was the very reason that he came to earth in the first place. Let's look at the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, verses 20 and 23. And we see that Joseph is struggling with the fact that his betrothed, Mary is pregnant. And then the angel of the Lord comes and reveals this plan to him. Starting in 1 verse 20. But as he, Joseph, considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So we're reminded at the end there that that God with us, Emmanuel, Jesus is incarnate. He is divine, but he is also a mighty God. He alone will save his people, not from the Romans or the Greeks or the Babylonians or the Assyrians. He will save his people from their sins. He will be mighty enough to look sin and death in the eye and say, I am greater than you. I am more powerful than you. I alone am mighty to save my people. And Jesus means the Lord saves, and he lived that out his entire life. And as we celebrate and remember Jesus entering into this world at Christmas, that was just the beginning of this saving and delivering mission that he was on. And as Jesus grew and began his ministry, we see that he walked and taught and modeled what it looks to live a God-honoring life, what it looks to live in this kingdom of heaven that he established. And, And he was a wonderful teacher and a great moral example, but he was so much more than that. 
And as Jesus continued to walk in obedience to the mission that God had sent him to accomplish, that obedience and humility led him right to the foot of the cross, where eventually he hung and died. Not because he was falsely accused of blasphemy, but because he died for your sin and for my sin and for the sins of the world, past, present, and future. Jesus showed his might through sacrificing himself on the cross. And what looked like defeat was the ultimate victory. It was Jesus offering through his sacrifice mercy and forgiveness and grace for all those who would believe. And that is wonderful and very good news. And as he conquered sin and the price of sin on the cross, three days later, Jesus rose again from the grave. And as he left the tomb behind, he conquered the last greatest enemy humankind has known, and that is death itself. So in Jesus, we have freedom from sin. And in Jesus, we have life that goes even beyond the grave. This is the gospel. It is good news, and it is all of what Jesus was meant to do when he came to earth to show that he is a mighty God. So what is that greatest enemy in our life? It's not the people who oppose us. It's not the situations that frustrate us. It's sin and death. But here's an important point. This is the one thing I really want you to take note of. Jesus didn't just come to save us from the consequences of sin. He came to save us from the power of sin. Not just the consequences of our sin, but the power of sin. So if you heard me here talk about the gospel of, of Jesus and the, and the grace and mercy and forgiveness found in Christ, we do it all a disservice if we treat it just like a get-out-of-hell-free card. Because it is true that when you trust in Jesus and Jesus alone, you can be restored in relationship to God and, and avoid the consequences that we deserve because of our sin and have everlasting life with him. That is true. But Jesus did so much more than just give us a place to, to hope for where we go after we die. This is not just about the future. It's not just about ourselves and what we escape. Jesus is mighty enough to deliver us not just from those consequences, but from the power of sin itself, which means it changes the way that we live today. He and he alone is mighty enough to free us from the bondage of sin completely. Paul says this in Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And so today, when we trust in Jesus as the mighty God who was bigger than our enemies of sin and death, when, he, when we believe and trust that he has conquered that in our life, then we have the ability today to walk in this newness of life. You see, under our own power, we were enslaved to sin. We were in bondage to sin every bit as much as Israel became in bondage to Assyria and Babylon. And Jesus then broke the yoke of oppression in our life and that's from the oppression of sin. We can now walk in newness of life. Of course, that doesn't mean we will never sin again. We all know that's not the case. I don't want you to mishear me or misunderstand me. 
I made a commitment to Jesus when I was four years old. I was really young. It was a very immature belief, but it was a belief. I have lived 34 more years since then, and I have not been perfect in those 34 years. And neither have you been perfect. And neither have any of us been perfect. But we do know that we are working out our salvation, that we are being made perfect by God each and every day. And then we can walk in freedom and in newness of life because of what Jesus has done and because of how powerful he is. It does mean now that for the first time, we have the ability to choose differently. On Thursday, we had the men's feast, and it was a really wonderful event for all those guys who were able to come. And Leighton Friesen, who's now the academic dean at SBC, came and he spoke. And he gave us a very good challenge. He spoke simply and profoundly on how we ought to live and how we ought to become a good person. And he says, I don't think this is talked about enough in church. And I said, okay, I'll talk about it this Sunday. That's fine. But what did Leighton talk about? Well, he talked about the fact that it's God's design and his desire to empower us in this life to slowly and surely make better decisions and better habits and live a more God-honoring life. And, and all of these small decisions and habits and disciplines that we, that we work with and that we, that we work for with the power of God on our side, eventually, over the course of time, will lead us to become more and more like God, to live a better and better life and to be a better example to those around us. And the key passage for him was Colossians 1.29, where Paul says, For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So Jesus is the mighty God, and he has delivered us from sin and from death. But he is right now a mighty God empowering you, empowering you to struggle and toil and to walk in newness of life. And so what we do in response to Jesus matters. What we do with the power that he has given us makes a difference. It is God's power that we struggle and we toil. And we can live a life free from the bondage of sin. I just want to invite you at the close here to stand for a moment. We're going to sing a song of response in just one moment. But before we do that, I want you just to, to bow your head. And, um, bow your head, yes, and close your eyes. And I'm going to ask you a few questions to consider, and then we'll pray. First question. In what area of your life do you need deliverance? In what area of your life do you look at your actions and your attitudes and say, this does not reflect the newness of life that Jesus offers to me. And with this part of your life in mind, are you relying on the mighty God to empower you to overcome the power of sin in your life? I don't mean are you trying hard enough. I don't mean are you relying on yourself. I don't mean are you persuaded by the pastor. Are you relying on the mighty God to empower you to overcome the sin in this area of your life. And my final question, are you, like Paul, toiling and struggling to live in the reality of the newness of life that Jesus has given you? Meaning it is God's power, it is God's freedom 
but he has asked you to be involved. He's asked you to make wise, God-honoring decisions. Are you relying on God, and are you struggling and toiling to live in the newness of life that he bought for you with his blood? God, today I pray that you would be with us, not just as a, a reminder of a story thousands of years ago, but each and every step we take, every, each and every breath we take, that you are with us, empowering us as the mighty God to live the delivered life that you paid for us, to live in response to all that you have done for us. God, and may we be people who truly say we rely on the mighty God. Amen. Amen.